Hello friends, welcome to episode number 43 of Starting to Know Business Podcast with your host and your friend Ishu Singh. If you want to get your company acquired, if you want to build a company which can get acquired, this is the podcast episode for you, so keep on listening. If you're listening to this podcast for the very first time, Starting to Know is all about you and business. We want you to build a business. We want you to scale your company. We want you to keep on scaling. Learn from the guests. Learn from me. What I know, what guests know. Keep on listening to the podcast episode and you will have a thriving business for sure. For the repeat listeners, thank you so much for coming back and listening to this podcast episode as well. This really means a lot to me. Thank you so, so much. If you didn't get a chance and you were busy, I know this is life, it happens, go to startingtoknow.com. Go to startingtoknow.com, learn more about business, affiliate marketing, SEO, branding, marketing, in-depth information, in-depth. If you want to learn more about me, specifically me, you want to talk to me, get in touch with me, go to issuesing.com. I-S-H-U-S-I-N-G-H dot com, com, and get in touch with me there. Again, don't forget to have a look on startingtoknow.com as well. Today in this episode, I have a guest, special guest. His name is John. John is a CEO of a value builder system. It's a software for M&As, accountants, to do the practice management. He started with a book, and people saw the value in that book. And John also realized that there is something else that can also be built around that book. That's when he thought of Value Builder System. John has his company acquired as well. John is very knowledgeable about mergers and acquisitions, how your company can get acquired, how you can build your company in such a way that it can get acquired what are the ingredients that you need, where you need to go to get your company acquired. So many things that you won't find on blogs, on Google. Like There there are going to be many, 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 many things that you can learn from this episode. I cannot wait anymore, and I'm going to start this show by welcoming John. Hi, John. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome here. What is built to sell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a book I wrote uh, years ago. Now I uh, I was I was involved in a company, a market research business that I uh, was was excited about. It was a big you know we had big clients, big banks, and phone companies as clients, and 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 I thought I could sell the business. So I went to a an M and A guy, and I said, "Hey, what do you what do you think it's worth?" And he said, "Well, not very much because <laughs> you're the one doing all the work, and you're the one doing all the selling." And so, I uh, I transformed that business over over a few years into a into a sellable asset. We moved to a subscription model, and ultimately, it was acquired by a publicly traded company. But it sort of inspired me the journey of being told that my business was not worth what I thought it was kind of inspired me to, to really dig in and learn more about what drives the value of your company. And, and so that ultimately ended up being uh, the book built to sell. And uh, mm-hmm. that started off uh, a whole journey. John, and then what is a value builder system? 
Value Builder is a practice management software we license to business advisors. So there are, uh, you know, accountants, M&A professionals, coaches, consultants who want to offer value building services to their business owner clients. Mm -hmm. And Value Builder is a practice management software that really runs that engine for them. So build to sell is the foundation and the value builder system is on top of that. Yeah, well, Built to Sell is a book, really, and uh, and it you know it's funny, it's um, to market the book we bought the URL builttosell.com, mm -hmm. and I was trying to think of kind of creative ways to to get people to to know about the book, and so I came up with a little questionnaire, which was sort of a questionnaire to, to ascertain whether you had a sellable company. You list off a bunch of questions and, and you answer a bunch of questions and it would tell you, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how sellable your company was. Hmm. Well, I put the tool on the website and a few months later, I started to get calls from advisors, business advisors, coaches, consultants, M&A guys saying, hey, we saw that questionnaire. Like, can we use that on our website? And hmm. it was kind of like a light bulb moment where I'm like, well, maybe there's a business helping advisors, you know, reach and talk to their clients about selling their company. And so that's, that was the crude, very early iteration of what became uh, value builder, which again, is a practice management software that business advisors use. Mm -hmm. And what makes the company sellable? Can you share some tips with us? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we did a bunch of research to build the algorithm that drives the value builder score. And what we discovered was that there are these eight factors that really drive the value of the company above and beyond the industry you're in. You know, like a lot of people think of their valuation as being determined by the industry they're in. So they're a, you know, they're a SaaS software product and they're, you know, they think, okay, I'm going to get a multiple on my revenue or they're a, a plumbing company and they think, okay, I'm going to get four times EBITDA. Like they have these sort of, uh, kind of preconceived notions of what their company is worth. Yet what we discovered through the research is that in many cases, businesses can do much better than the prevailing multiple. And, and in many cases, much worse if they've got some problems with their business model. So these eight factors that actually drive the value of your company much more so than your industry. So there's things like you know, recurring revenue is a big deal. Now, when I say recurring revenue, a lot of people think SaaS companies, mm -hmm. uh, but but recurring revenue can apply to just about any business. Um, you know, I, oftentimes I get people who hear me say recurring revenue and they're like, yeah, but you don't get it. I'm a manufacturer or I'm a distribution company or I'm a retailer mm -hmm. and it doesn't really apply to me. And when I hear that, I tell them the story of H. Bloom because I think they're a great example of someone that has really remade an industry with recurring revenue. So if you don't know the H. Bloom story, they, they, they got in the business of selling flowers, right? So <laughs> flowers is a crappy business. Like it's, it's uh, you know, the farmer cuts the flower off the stem, it starts to die. You know, typical flower store will throw out half of its inventory every month because it's just dead rotting in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day is when we all buy flowers. And so the rest of the year, it's really tough to create demand for people to buy flowers. And these two guys came along, Barkhart and Sonia Panda, Brian Burkhart and Sonia Panda. And they said, we're going to sell flowers, but we're actually going to do it on subscription. Now you say, well, like who would ever buy flowers on subscription? Well, it turns out there's a very small, you know, portion of the flower buying universe that buys flowers regularly. And that's hotels, right? Because mm -hmm. they, they want that prestigious sort of five-star feel 
So when you walk into the Ritz Carlton in Beverly Hills, or you know, even in you know the Chicago um, uh, Hilton, you probably see a fresh cut bouquet of flowers. And so what H Bloom did is supply those flowers on a recurring basis, subscription basis. The average lifetime value of an H Bloom subscriber, one of these hotels, is four thousand five hundred dollars, compared to the average transaction in a flower store of around fifty dollars. H Bloom throws out less than 2% of its inventory because they only buy the number of flowers they need to fill the subscribers they've got. Whereas a typical flower store will throw again, half of its inventory. So like which business would you rather own? <laughs> which mm. business would you rather buy? It's the one with recurring revenue. And that's why, you know, recurring revenue is so important to the value of any company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned eight points. So you you consider this point as as you can say that the most important one right it's one of them for sure i mean another another one is what we call monopoly control which is comes from the the famous investor warren buffett who buys companies with what he calls a deep and wide competitive moat and what he means by that is is you've you've got marketing differentiation you do something that nobody else does and and what that does from an everyday business perspective is that it gives you more pricing authority, the ability to determine your prices better. When you control your pricing, you get better margins. And when you get better margins, you can invest more in sales and marketing. And so it creates this sort of domino effect. Mm-hmm. And it also makes your business much more attractive to an acquirer because business buyers, acquirers only buy what they couldn't easily replicate. Like if you've got a business where you're just selling a service or a product that people can get all over the place, mm-hmm. it's effectively commoditized. An acquirer is not going to buy your company. They certainly won't pay a premium to buy your company because they're going to make the argument that if you're selling a commoditized service, they need only to lower the price for a few months. They will basically acquire all of your customers mm-hmm. and they don't need to buy your business. They just need to drop their price for a few months. And so it's only when you've ha- when you have something that's again, really unique that an acquirer will make the calculation that's actually cheaper to buy your business than it would be to effectively compete with you. And so when you see these examples um, where there's really true marketing differentiation, you start to see these exceptional multiples, which is, uh, which is again, one of the other drivers of, of, uh, of your company's value. Mm-hmm. So you're basically saying like, there has to be some USP in, in the product or the service that, that the person is selling. But here comes the point. Like, I think that uh, creating a unique product or service slash a business is really hard nowadays because if you talk about SaaS, if you're thinking that one SaaS is going to do certain kind of things, there are going to be 10 more SaaS. If they don't exist now, they're going to be existing in six months. So it's very hard to create that USP and like attract MA guys. So what do you think? Like there has to be some kind of value as you you have built a value builder system. So I'm I'm asking your perspective, like what is value according to you? Well, the definition of, of value is effectively being willing to pay for goodwill. So mm. when when you 
talk to accountants, they refer to goodwill. And it has nothing to do with how, you know, how much your customers like you or how mm-hmm. good your product is. It's effectively the difference between the book value of your company, the, the value of your hard assets and the value of your business. So if you, let's just put a round number. If you sell your company for a million dollars and your hard assets only amount to $100,000, well, then you mm-hmm. built $900,000 of goodwill. And that's really what we talk about when we're creating, when we're talking about creating value, we're talking about creating goodwill, the, the, the difference between the value of your company and its hard assets. And again, that comes down to some of these factors we've talked about so far, something unique, something uh, with recurring revenue. That's effectively the, the essence of entrepreneurship. And I think if you create something that is a me too product or is in an industry where there's lots of competition, mm-hmm. again, it can be a little bit like, you know, you're just running on a hamster wheel. I'll give you an example. Like mm-hmm. it literally comes from a conversation I had an hour and 15 minutes ago. It was a podcast as an episode I did built to sell radio. This guy built an amazing app for sports leagues to track their statistics. So if you're in a, in a sports league and if you're a, if you're a scout or a parent of a player or uh, you know, someone in the media that's covering the team in real time, you can, you can, through his app, you can follow the stats of each of the players. Cool little app. And, mm-hmm. and he built it out of an IT consultancy. His IT consultancy was 27 employees doing project-based consulting and IT consulting. And in his spare time, he built this great little app. And so he got to thinking maybe he'd like to sell his company. And he went out and talked to some people about his business. Well, one of the people he went to was a company called Hockey Tech Canada, which is a, a technology company that's focused on bringing technology and analytics to uh, hockey. Mm-hmm. And what do you think Hockey Tech says when they look at this business that has this sort of generic IT consultancy on one hand and this little jewel called mm-hmm. this, this statistics app on the other? Well, they did what most people would do is said, yeah, we want the app, but we don't want the other thing, <laughs> right? And they carved out the app and they bought the app and the seven employees that supported the app and the other 20 employees and the rest of the IT consultancy was... I don't want to say a worthless business, but but it was largely worthless uh, hmm. because it wasn't doing anything unique. It didn't have any unique IP or any unique USP. And, and so I give you that example because if you're just starting a business that's very generic in nature, you're really just running on a treadmill. You're, you, you know, and, and that can be okay if you if your goal is to just, you know, draw out profits along the, along the way, and you have no intention to sell your company. But if the goal is one day to create some value for your business, to sell it, effectively, it's better to really double down on that one thing that makes you unique, that you can carve out a USP for, uh, rather than the sort of uh, generic business that has no point of differentiation. Mm-hmm. And what according to you is difficult, like getting the company acquired or getting or raising the money, like which one is the hard? Because what I have understood so far, it is a kind of a process and a journey. Is like building a business takes time. It's not going to happen in six months. It might, if the if the if the product or the industry is com- completely different, not tapped enough. So, what do you think? Like raising the money is hard, or getting acquired? Raising money is easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, you know, I mean. Look, it's we are we are in an incredibly 
uh, incredibly favorable time to raise money for any business. I, I'd never seen it this frothy. There mm-hmm. are just so many people wanting to to invest in mm-hmm. startups. Everyone from kind of individual investors who've got some extra money to to private equity groups rolling up entire categories to strategics looking to deploy, deploy capital. So, you know, there there's lots of money floating around for ideas. There's no money to invest in an idea that is that is not unique. There's there's no money at all for that. There never will be and never is. Uh, what really you know, you th- you have to think about raising money I think in the context of like if as soon as you 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 take money, you need to give a return on investment to those shareholders. And so you're basically, you know, starting the clock on when you need to get acquired. Keep in mind, most businesses, I, I think it's a misnomer to think that you have to raise money to start a business. The, the company I just referenced earlier, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the startup, the, the, uh, the hockey application, mm-hmm. didn't raise any money. They were an IT consulting co- company. To start a consulting company, you don't need any capital. You can mm-hmm. just have a phone and, and some skills. And he built it up, took profits from that company and invested it in the app worked on the app on the weekends and the evenings. And he created it basically bootstrapped with no outside capital. In fact, a lot of the companies that I interview on Built to Sell Radio are self-funded. They're, they're, not, they're not rich people or they didn't win the lottery or they, they didn't raise a bunch of money. It's actually a fairly small minority of companies that actually go raise money. And I, I think, um, uh, you know, I think in many cases that actually is, 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 in very rare cases, I think it almost always is a mistake to raise money. I'll give you an example. So I did an interview on Built to Sell Radio with a guy named Rand Fishkin. Rand Fishkin wrote a great book called Lost and Founder. And he started a company called Moz, which mm. is a, a SEO uh, tool. SEO tool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, great, you know, great business growing like stink. Well, he built it up to $5 million in revenue when he got a call from Brian Halligan, who is the co-founder of HubSpot. And Halligan says, look, we want to buy your business. We're kind of weak on SEO. We've got the all-in-one marketing software. So can we buy your business? And they offered him $25 million. And Rand, by the way, was bootstrapped. He and his mom started the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, He turned him down because he had heard that his business might be worth four times top line revenue. And that although they were at five million, then he expected by the end of the year to go to ten million. Mm-hmm. So he's like doing the math, saying, "Well, ten times four is forty million, and you're only offering me twenty-five. And so he turned him down. Mm-hmm. And instead, he took on venture capital. He raised money, and mm-hmm. he raised money from a VC. And the VC is obviously VCs. They they're looking for a unicorn, so they're looking to grow that business like a hundredfold. Mm-hmm. And so they convinced Rand to start a whole bunch of products that he really doesn't understand or doesn't want, you know, categories he doesn't really know very well. Mm-hmm. And the business starts to bleed cash and the business starts to really struggle so much so that the VCs remove Rand for, as the CEO of his own company mm-hmm. and they take over the business. And I interviewed Rand after this and I said, man, like, mm-hmm. How was how did that feel to be removed from your company? He said it was terrible. I said, but at least you have the stock that you had in Moz. At least that, that's going to be worth the truckload when they sell. He's actually he's like, no, probably not. I think it's actually not worth anything. And mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, because VCs when they invest, they get preferred shares, mm-hmm. and they get a guaranteed 
return on those preferred shares before common shareholders get anything. And because of the length of time they've held their shares, they're likely to get all of their money out, but there won't be much left, if anything, for us as common shareholders. And I said, but but Rand, what would that offer from Brian Halligan be worth today based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock? You know, it's gone public. And he said it would be worth close to $200 million. Whoa. <laughs> uh, so my point is, I, I'm not a fan of raising money. I, I think it's lazy. I think there's a lot of examples where people raise money when they don't need to. I'm much more of a fan of bootstrapping and being owning a big chunk of a small business, being true to a specific niche, mm -hmm. uh, doing one thing, and um, and so that yeah, that's that's uh, that's mm -hmm. my preference at least. So, John, in a bootstrap way, um, the with the venture capital firms or with those level of connections, like getting the company acquired is easy. I feel that because you open new doors, which, which are kind of impossible if someone is not having connections or moving in a bootstrap way. Like, what are the ways that person can get acquired? Like, if the person is running a business for quite some time in a bootstrap way, don't have much connections, and now actually thinking of getting acquired, company's profitable, no problem. So what should be the steps? Yeah, so here's the thing. Selling a company is not a how problem, it's a who problem. Mm -hmm. You're thinking of it, about it in the sense of, um, you know, I don't have any connections, mm -hmm. how am I gonna go about selling my business? Mm -hmm. It's a who problem, meaning you need an advisor, a business broker on a small company or an M&A advisor in a larger company to sell your company for you. You wouldn't sell your home without a, without a real estate agent mm. and you don't sell a company without an advisor. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so fundamental that it is, it, is, it is critical. And those advisors have the relationships you're describing. Those brokers and those M&A professionals know the private equity groups. They, they know the corporate advisors. They know the individual investors. Mm. That's why you pay them is because they have the network. And so you need an M&A professional. If you have a decent company, you need an M&A professional. I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Mark Levy who I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio. Mm -hmm. He's built two companies in the same industry. It's, it's locker storage businesses. If you've ever seen a Whole Foods, you get the Amazon mm -hmm. lockers. It's a similar business model. His first business, he went and he did it on his own. Didn't have a lot of network, didn't have a lot of connections. Kind of found an, a, 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 a an acquirer sort of through his own network and they offered him a pretty modest sum of money for the company, but he was sort of ready to move on. And so he agreed and they went through a series, like 60 days of due diligence at the end of the diligence, they said, Oh, you know, we found something we didn't like. We're, we're not willing to buy your business for what we thought we would. We're actually going to buy it for less, 20% less than they'd originally planned. So Arik at this point had kind of moved on in his mind agreed to the lower amount of money. Then they turned around and said, you know what, we we're gonna pay you cash, but we couldn't get the bank to lend us the money, so now we're gonna you know, pay you over time. Mm -hmm. And that's what can happen if you try to do it yourself. It's, it's not a DIY project selling your company. So arguably he learns from this, later, years later, he sells a similar business. This time he hires an M&A professional. He got five offers for his business and the M&A professional played one offer off the other ultimately selling his business for three times more 
than what the original offers were for. That's why you have an M&A professional. That's why you have an advisor who, who does this. It's, it's what they do. It's the connections they have. And so it's, it's, it's not a DIY project. You don't want to figure out how to, how to do this on your own. <laughs> okay. Okay. What do you think, like, what kind of advice do you have for the founders, entrepreneurs who are listening to you right now? Any advice that I'm, or any advice related to the question that I might have asked you and didn't get a chance to ask? You know, I think, I think there's an overriding theme um, that I'll just leave you with, which is, you know, a lot of people listening to this are going to be parents. Mm. Uh, all of us have parents, but many of us are parents. And I mm. think, you know, as a parent, you always want the best for your child. Some people want their kid to go to some fancy school or some fancy university or become the CEO of some big company. But I think most of us have much more modest <laughs> goals for our kids. And that is, you know, we want our kids to be happy and independent, thriving adults one day and the kind of positive contributors to society. And if they achieve that, then we've sort of done our job as parents. I think for a lot of owners of businesses, we'd be better off thinking of ourselves, not as the CEO of our business, but as the parent of our company. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to like make your business to be this massive company or this huge success or to become the next Elon Musk or whatever, think about your role as being the parent. It's, it's really to, to kind of coach and cajole and, 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 and help your company to become a thriving business independent of you. And when you've done that, when they can walk out the door and, and, and be a thriving independent entity, you've built a successful business. You built a business that you could sell if you wanted to, or you could simply hold it as an asset. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a different way to think about building a company. Instead of being your, your company CEO or your founder, think of yourself as a parent of your company. And I think it can just lead to some different decision-making that, that ultimately I think it leads to the health of the business. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a really interesting way to look at, uh, look at the thing. So I wanted to ask you, like, this was my last question, but now another question came in my mind. I must ask you, do you think like process building the process is part of the whole system that like you said, like um, you mentioned, couple of points where you said it's value value is about many things is in some cases it can be monetary in some cases it can be uniqueness of the product and everything that like comes together and uh in in getting acquired what do you think the role of processes in all that as you said raising a child but according to me raising a child is a process you teach them this is how you walk this is how you learn this is how you do things so it's all process based. What what is the power of process according to you like in this whole thing? It's critical. It's critical. It's um it's one of the eight key drivers of company value. We call it hub and spoke, but it refers to how dependent the company is on its owner. Mm. And when your company is deeply dependent on you to do the work, you haven't built processes or what some refer to as SOP, standard operating procedures, it's really hard to sell your company because it doesn't thrive or live without you. And so I think building processes into your company is, is absolutely critical. I'll give you, I'll give an example. I, I talked to a woman recently for Built to Sell Radio. She built a social media agency, um, dozen or so employees. And 
and I was talking to you about, you know, the, the exit and how she did it. And she said, well, you know, before I sold my company, I, you know, I wrote these standard operating procedures, right? This, like I put together this manual effectively, this binder so that my employees would know how to run my company without me. And I said, gosh, Jody, that sounds like, like a nightmare for, uh, the typical entrepreneur. I mean, that just sounds terrible. Like, I mean, most entrepreneurs are creative. They, they like think doing things their way. They're, they're independent minded, they're free spirits. Like the idea of sitting down and writing step-by-step instructions for three months straight sounds terrible. And she said, yeah, but if you're going to go to prison, would you rather go for three months or three years? And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. And she said, well, if you sell your company without doing the processes, you're going to have an earnout, and an earnout is where you have basically golden handcuffs. You sell a little part of your business up front, you get a boss, and then you have to hit certain goals in the future as a division of another company. And her point was that yeah, writing processes sucks, but unless you want to go work for your acquirer for three years, it's a whole lot better to invest three months up front than to get stuck in a three-year earnout where you're effectively an employee of a company that you, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want, most people don't want to be an employee of a company they didn't sign up to be part of. And, and, um, and I've always remembered that notion of kind of three months versus three years. And so, yeah, I think processes is a critical part of building a valuable company. This is a golden advice. Yeah. I'm going to keep that in my books for sure. Where can we, where can we learn more about your business? If someone wants to get in touch with you, Yeah, just head over to builttosell.com. Got it. Thank you so much, John, for coming to the pod today. This really means a lot. Thanks, Susan.